All right, my name is Ross Anderson. I'm a teaching pastor here at Alpine Church. We come around to Riverdale as often as we are allowed in the schedule. So um, it's great to be here with you guys. Sally and I love uh, Riverdale campus, and, and, and whenever we're connected with you guys, it's just such an encouragement. And so, you know, if uh, we haven't met yet, please, you know, p- feel free to come up and introduce yourself, and we'd, we'd be happy to get better acquainted with you. Today, we are entering the Gospel of Mark again. We're, we, we left the series for Advent and for the beginning of the year. We spent the whole, uh, really the whole of last year walking through the Gospel of Mark together, and we're resuming today. Last year, we did the first 13 chapters. Today, we're going to pick up in chapter 14, and there's only 16 chapters in Mark, so it's going to take us right up to Easter, and that'll be our, our the culmination of, the, of our book and climaxing in the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's just take a minute to review for a second where we've been before. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. There's four books in the New Testament that talk about the life of Jesus. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest one of them. And it's different from the others in the sense that it's full of action. It's really an action-oriented kind of gospel. We see a lot of, a lot of dramatic moments and vivid pictures and descriptions of things going on. And, and Mark actually has fewer teachings of Jesus. He doesn't record like chapter, and chap, chapter after chapter of Jesus' words. Uh, so he has fewer of the, of the formal teachings of Jesus than other gospels. But the words of Jesus are clearly there. And we see Jesus in action. And so Mark wrote to show the world who Jesus is and really what he did, what he's all about. And so he, he does that by zeroing in on individual people and their response to who Jesus is, their response to Jesus' words or his actions. And you see those people that he zeroes in on as a filter to help us understand what's our response to Jesus and how do we know who he is. And so the central theme of the whole book starts in, in very... Uh, the very first verse, this is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, when you get to chapter 14, we're looking at the first 11 verses today. If you want to find those in your Bible or your, or your app. Um, here's the timeline of what's happening in the flow of the story at this point. So, this is the final week of Jesus' life. And the go- all the Gospels, in fact, put a lot of emphasis and really it's... A third of the Gospel of Mark, a third of Matthew is all devoted to that final week of Jesus' life because of its incredible significance. And so Jesus had been moving toward Jerusalem. Most of his ministry had been done up in Galilee, the area around the the Sea of Galilee, around Capernaum. And now he's been moving steadily toward Jerusalem. He's finally arrived for what turns out to be a final confrontation with the leaders of Judaism. And that began in chapter 11 with the triumphal entry, it's called, of Jesus into the city. And then we saw it intensify in chapter 12, in chapter 13. And now in 14, here's the question that we're going to be exploring today. How do you handle the hard sayings of Jesus? Because throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus say some things that can be very hard for people to accept challenges to people about their lives and about their attitudes. Somebody mentioned to me this morning uh, the hard saying of Jesus that really the most challenging for them is like, uh, love your enemies. Like, whoa, how, how, many, how many of us do that? Or, or hard sayings that Jesus made that included claims about himself and who he is and, and why that matters. 
And so today, in the passage we're going to be looking at, Jesus' words, his conversation in this passage, imply some of those claims. Now, he doesn't just come out and say them in the passage today. But from the context of the conversations here, as well as drawing from the things that he says in, the, in all the Gospels, the things that his followers had heard him say along the way, that it becomes very clear what Jesus is really talking about in, in light of that overall context, what he's saying. And so we're going to look at three issues in particular that a lot of people have a challenge with. Okay? We'll look at them briefly. And, and, and more than delving into each of them so much specifically, we will to some extent, but I want to look at what's the impact in our lives of the hard sayings of Jesus. How do we respond to that? And, and what does that mean when we run across those things? Well, today we're going to use as an example his view on finances, which is challenging but practical. His view on his own identity, kind of a theological question. And then his view on salvation, which is theological but also very practical as well. And so the events that we're looking at in Mark chapter 14 occur during the Jewish festival of Passover. And what we're going to see <clears throat> is that one night leading up to Passover, Jesus is staying at somebody's home. And this woman who lives there, her name is Mary. It's not his mother Mary, but it's another Mary. She anoints Jesus with this extravagant, expensive gesture. And she gets very criticized from his other followers about it. They criticize her a lot. And when Jesus, the way he defends her, it hints at the first hard saying of Jesus that we're looking at today, that it's implied today, is the saying that you can't serve God in money. You can't serve God and money. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, It was now two days before Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration they agreed or the people may riot. And so it talks about the Passover. This is all in the context of that time frame. I want to talk about how the timing of that might be significant here. But the Passover festival was a really important, sacred event for the people of Judaism. So the Jewish people commemorated at that time, every year, that their liberation that God gave them from slavery in Egypt thousands of years before. It's rooted in the biblical account of the Exodus where God uses these several plagues, he inflicts them on Egypt. Egypt had captured Israel and, had, and enslaved the whole nation, and God used these plagues inflicted on Egypt to motivate the king, the Pharaoh, to let the Israelites go. <clears throat> now, the tenth and final plague would be the worst. So God gave his own people, the Israelites, instructions about how they could be spared from that plague. And it involved they'd have to find a lamb kill the lamb, mark the house with the blood of the lamb, like paint the, the, the blood on the doorposts and, and, and the framework of the door outside. And when the angel of destruction sent by God would see that blood on the house, it would pass over that home. Now that plague eventually got the king's attention and he let the Israelites go free. Now, there's a lot of things, other things involved in this story, but the gist of it is that's why, what Passover was all about. And there were certain key elements of the Passover celebration that 
reflected that ancient event that people were commemorating. So the centerpiece for celebrating Passover in Jesus' day was the sacrificial lamb. And so families would select a lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb, no blemish involved. And they would take that lamb to the temple and have it sacrificed. Sacrificed to God at the temple. And then they would get the lamb back and they take it home and roast it for Passover dinner. And it reminded them about how the blood of that lamb that their ancestors had taken and applied to their doorposts, how, how that reminded them of God's protection and God's deliverance for them as a nation. And then during the Passover, you see, we saw in, in verse 1 that it's also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Jews were required to eat bread without yeast, bread that had not had, had risen. And it's called matzah, or it's also called the bread of affliction, to remind them back of what had happened. And it symbolized how their ancestors had, had left Egypt in such a great hurry that they didn't have time to let bread rise and to bake. And then... <clears throat> There were four cups of wine that were consumed in the Passover meal. Each one of those with a, a, a specific significance that represented elements of the Exodus story and elements of God's promises. We'll look at those next week. So you see in verse 2 that the leaders who opposed Jesus were worried about a plot. They didn't want to come against him publicly. Well, here's why. Because Jerusalem was the only place that the Passover was allowed to be could be celebrated. And so that means the festival drew huge crowds. Everybody from outside of Jerusalem came to make their offering. And it was, it was packed. The city was loaded. It increased the population maybe several fold. And so they knew that if they moved while the, during the Passover, the crowds could turn against them. Jesus was very popular. And the, the idea of liberation associated with the festival, it could easily turn into something that the Roman government would want to crack down upon any kind of uprising like that. And so that's what verse 2 is all about. Well, now in verse 3, we get more specific about what's going on in this passage and, and what, what Jesus is doing here. It says that, Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, <coughs> while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made of the essence of nard. She broke open the jar and poured the perfume over his head. So Passover is now just two days away. Jesus is staying in a town near Jerusalem. It's like a suburb. It's called Bethany. It's a short walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. He's staying at the home of a man named Simon. Now, Mark doesn't identify who all the people in the story are. He doesn't identify who this woman is. But in John's gospel, in the parallel passage, John chapter 12, he tells us that this was Mary. Mary was the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus had raised from the dead. They had another sister named Martha. So Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And so we're thinking that Simon was probably their father. He was a leper. Had Jesus healed him? We don't really know the answer to all those questions. But that's what, they're, they're at his house and they're having dinner together, you know, just kind of uh, what hosts do. Now, in Jewish culture at that time, it was bad manners for Jewish male fellowship to be interrupted by women unless they were serving food. So, men, some of you are thinking that, that that's going to be how it is tonight at your Super Bowl party, right? Well, Mark often reminds us that the values of society, even Jewish society, 
are not always the values that Jesus has. And so Mary's intrusion is not a problem. In fact, she's commended by Jesus for her act, for what she did. Now, when she poured that perfume over Jesus' head, I want you to understand what an extravagant act that must have been. That jar was likely a family heirloom. Now, that kind of, the kind of jar, you didn't just open it, you didn't like unscrew the cap, take a few drops out, you know, and screw it up back together and put it back in the shelf. No, it was, it was made in such a way, the jar was made like uh, a unit, it had to be released, it had to be smashed, and all the contents were released all at once. Now, the next verse says, we're going to see that the contents of that jar are worth a year's wages. So think about how much you make every year. Think tens of thousands of dollars. And that entire amount was spent on Jesus in those few moments. And John tells us that a beautiful fragrance filled the room. And so Mary's act here and the response of the disciples hints at the first hard saying I mentioned, that you can't serve God and money because of the expense of of what she gave at that time. And now Jesus didn't just imply this here he said it elsewhere so we're not just like drawing this out of nothing but in mark chapter 6 verse 24 jesus talked about that i encourage you to go and look that up mark chapter 6 verse 24 but here's where it comes out in the conversation here in mark chapter 14 some of those at the table were indignant why waste such expensive perfume they asked it could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor so they scolded her harshly again mark doesn't really name the people who are involved in this conversation he just says some of those who are at the table there but john does in john's in john's parallel version he takes the words that some of them at the table were saying and he ascribes them directly to one of them to judas iscariot he says that judas uh, john tells us judas was in charge of the disciples money their common fund But he didn't really care about the poor, John says. John says he was a thief, and he was often stealing some money from the the kitty. But Mark makes it clear here that it wasn't just Judas saying those things, but other people around the table were indignant about Mary's actions, and that might have included other disciples. See how here's how Jesus responded in verse 6. Jesus replied, Leave her alone. Why criticize her for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, and you can help them whenever you want to, but you will not always have me. So he's saying, yes, it's important to help the poor. But he's hinting at an even greater priority than that that's been represented by Mary's act that day. What is a greater priority than than helping people in need? The challenge to us is like, when have we been extravagant toward Jesus? When have we treated Jesus with this, this, our finances, when have our finances said you are more important than even great priorities in life? And so I want to wonder if there's some financial choice that you're facing today where extravagance would be an appropriate response to who Jesus is. What would that be? I can't tell you what that might be, but you would know. Now, Jesus' defense of Mary here suggests a second scandalous issue 
that people struggle with beyond that. More about Jesus' identity here. Mary's act of pouring out that perfume on Jesus exposes something about her. And it says what she thought of Jesus and how she valued Jesus. And the response of the disciples that we just saw, their criticism of her exposes something about them exposes maybe their ignorance of the true identity of Jesus or maybe they or maybe they didn't uh, were unwilling to accept the true identity of Jesus. And so that links us to this second hard saying of Jesus where Jesus claims I'm God. Again, he doesn't come right out and say it right here. Mary's actions suggests what Jesus said elsewhere that would be implied here, but he made it clear somewhere else. So let's look back at the things that that Jesus replied and see how they relate to this. So what you see here is that Jesus' defense of Mary, it boils down to one thing. It boils down to who he is. And Why would it be a higher priority to pour out this expensive perfume on him instead of selling it for the poor? Why would that be the highest priority? Why would he matter that much? What was it about Jesus that made Mary's response fitting? And not worthy of critique. See, if those who criticized her, if they really understood Jesus' true identity, they would have seen how appropriate her action really was. I mean, they'd spent three years traveling with Jesus now. Along the way, he's revealed himself in a whole bunch of different ways, through his teaching, through his miracles. He showed his authority over nature, authority that only the the creator of nature actually possesses. And on top of that, they were there when Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They were there. They heard him say that. And they saw how the people in the crowd who heard that, how they understand, how they understood what Jesus was saying because the crowds accused him of blasphemy because they said, oh, you're claiming to be God. And they heard that. They saw that. And so if they had been connecting the dots, then I think they would have approved of Mary's action as this act of unrestrained worship toward Jesus, which he clearly deserved because of who he was. Now tell me, what's been your journey? Think about that. As you come to grips with this idea, how have you observed Jesus' unique identity? How do you value him what have you heard him saying? And I, and I think this is a hard saying. The idea of Jesus is God. This is a hard saying of Jesus for a lot of people because many people just want to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher or an enlightened spiritual guide or they might be happy to say there's a certain voice in our culture, our society today that says Jesus is God in the same way that every human being is God, has a spark of divinity and, and so forth. There's that perspective out there. But most people will hesitate to say that Jesus is uniquely God, that he's the only human being who will ever be God because he was God first before he became a man. It made me think of a friend of mine who was raised in a religious home. And one day, a few years ago, he came to Alpine Church for the very first time. And what he, he tells about what struck him powerfully that very first time, walked in. I don't remember what the sermon was or who, who he was listening to that day. 
But what struck him very powerfully, and this is what he told his wife when he got home, he said, they said Jesus is God. He couldn't get over. He said, can you imagine? They said Jesus is God. And even though from a religious background, he'd never heard or comprehended that before in just the way that it was explained that day. And it became a turning point for him. And he and his wife have been following Jesus at Alpine Church ever since that time. Jesus is God. Well, in the next verses, Jesus said something else in defense of Mary. And when we put that together... It hints at the third hard saying that a lot of people don't like to swallow. And that is, Jesus says, I am the only way to heaven. So, verse 8. Jesus continues, talking about Mary. He said, she has done what she could and has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Kind of like we're doing today. So, you know, Mary broke that that bottle of that jar of expensive perfume over Jesus' head, and I don't know about you, but to me that seems like a really strange thing to do in light of today's culture. You know, please don't ever do that to me. Can I, like, if I'm at your house and whatever, it seems like a really weird thing. So I got thinking, about, well, what's the significance of that? Why was that like something that mattered that day, other than just the expense of the thing? Well, there were two ways that anointing, this is an act of her anointing him on the head. There are two ways that that act of anointing had significance in the Jewish culture. Number one, it was used for burial. So if you're preparing a, a body that if someone who's died, preparing for burial, you'll, you'll pour out the perfume and, and so forth. And so maybe the family had this expensive jar of perfume, this heirloom, uh, to anoint Simon's body when, once he had died. Don't know. But Jesus does mention, she has anointed my body for burial ahead of time. Now, I don't think Mary was intending that. I don't think she was really in, in tune with that idea. That was what she was all about. I realize that. But Jesus was going to die in three days. Three days from this passage right here. Jesus will be dead. And now before he had told his followers, he said, look, I've got to go to Jerusalem. And when I get there, I'm going to, be, I'm going to, I'm going to suffer. And the leaders will be against me. And, and I'm going to die. But he, he told them it would happen. They didn't believe him at the time. They didn't say, no, what are you talking about? He didn't tell them the details. He didn't tell them the when or the, or the how. But I think that by the time we're here and they see him aggressively confronting the Jewish leaders and cleansing the temple and, and they see the, the crowds welcoming him in chapter 11 as he comes triumphantly into Jerusalem that first time and the crowds are singing, Hosanna, blessed is the na- one who comes in the name of the Lord. I think his followers even are still expecting him to take the throne. Like they thought the Messiah would do to to rule politically like King David had done centuries before. And so, when he was arrested, and then when he was killed, they had to be completely shocked by those turn of events. So they they would not have been thinking about burial. But in fact, other than this event, Jesus never was anointed for burial. 
because he died on the cross on Friday, and then the Sabbath begins Friday at, at sundown, and so they weren't able to take the body down and prepare it. They just threw it in the tomb, and, uh, and during the whole Sabbath, nobody was able to do that because of the restrictions, and they came back on, the women came back on Sunday morning to do the burial, to do the anointing, and Jesus' body wasn't even there. He was risen from the dead. So this is very true what Jesus is saying. He's been anointed for burial in advance. But the second way that anointing was used in Jewish culture was for coronation. Every king in Judah's history had been anointed by a prophet before he began his rule as king. So when you think about those two things... The, the symbolic significance of Mary's act, it really points toward what Jesus' role was going to be. He's anointed as king of Israel. And that makes him the savior of the nation. But not how the disciples expected. Not like the people who welcomed him on the triumphal entry expected. They expected a political deliverer who would save them from the power of Rome and Roman oppression. And yet at the same time, Jesus is anointed for death. And paradoxically, that also makes him, that marks him as Savior. Because his death, his death on the cross, which will happen in three days, that provides a much greater deliverance than the political deliverance. It provides deliverance for us from the power of sin, the oppressive power of sin in our lives, and from God's judgment against our sin. And so Mary's act of devotion points at, and it hints at, Jesus' role in making it possible for every person to become reconciled to their creator. A lot of people don't like the claim that Jesus makes as Savior. That's a hard saying. It becomes a hard saying because his claim is exclusive. He said it in a number of times in a lot of different ways, but one way that Jesus expressed it, one of the most clear ways that Jesus expressed it is in John 14, verse 6. I encourage you to look that up when you get a chance, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's a hard saying. Because in saying that, then Jesus rules out every other possible approach to God. And people like to think in our culture today, all roads lead to heaven. Every path leads to God. Good, moral, religious people can't possibly be excluded. Why would God do that? And in fact, you look around the world, and you study world religions, you see that every religion in the world really likes to have Jesus in their system. Somewhere they want to include Jesus in their, in their religious system. But they just don't want to include him on his terms. Because Jesus keeps coming up with hard sayings like, I'm the only way to heaven. Now, <clears throat> the difficult things that Jesus was getting at that day, the difficult things he was getting at that day, became a turning point for one of those 12, one of his 12 closest followers. And you know, it made me think any of the challenging things that Jesus says can be, can be a turning point in either direction. It can be a catalyst that moves us toward him or it can be an obstacle that keeps us away from him.
But it appears that those things, as they came to a head that day, they pushed Judas over the edge. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard what, that he had, why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. So it's a crossroads for Judas. It's a turning point for him. Because the very next thing that he did after that, that event that night, after that meal at Simon's house that night, he went to Jesus' enemies and he offered to betray Jesus for a price. Now, as I try to put this together, it doesn't seem like that just came out of the blue. It, Mark re- records it pretty abruptly. But, you know, if you understand a little bit about human beings, then you, you think probably he was, he was struggling with some things along the way. He was grappling with some things maybe that he'd seen or that he'd heard from Jesus. He's trying to make it all make sense. And it all came to a head in his experience that night as Jesus reinforced some things for Judas. You can't serve God in money. Maybe it was the extravagance of what Mary did or how Jesus defended her that made Judas conclude that, hey, maybe Jesus just doesn't get it. I'm God. Jesus says, I'm God. Maybe Judas clearly did not understand or even accept Jesus' true identity. When he says, I'm the only way to heaven, I wonder if Judas realized that night as Jesus was talking about his death, he began to like, connect the dots a little bit, that he realized that Jesus was not going to be the conquering king that everybody expected him to be. And I wonder if Jesus thought, hey, this is not what I signed up for He thought he understood things maybe better than Jesus did. And he let the expectations that he had of God keep him from experiencing the better plan that God actually had in store. So it became a a turning point for Judas that night. Now to bring it back full circle, back to chapter 1, what Jesus said when he first appeared on the scene All the way long ago, he said, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. So in light of God's Savior coming, this is what the gospel of Mark has been building toward. What is our response to the coming of the Savior? What is our response to God's work in the world? Jesus says, here's the right response. Repent and believe the good news. And when he says believe, the word that he uses there, it doesn't mean just to acknowledge the truth about Jesus intellectually. It doesn't say like, oh, yeah, oh, I, I believe that that's true. But the word here implies placing our trust in what we have realized is true. To put our trust in him, to entrust your life and your eternity into his hands. Is that a decision that you've made so far in your life? But to repent, to repent is the flip side of the same coin. To repent means to turn from your own way to follow God's way. To turn from your own opinion to adopt what God says is real and true. To turn from calling the shots in your own life to submit to Jesus even when it's hard to accept what he might be saying. That's the response that Jesus is calling for. 
That's the response that who he is actually demands from us. For Judas, he said no. Will today be a turning point for you? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you sent your son into the world to deal with our problem, that you sent the Savior, the King, into the world, that his death was so meaningful because he died in our place for our sin. He died on the cross for all the ways that we've messed up and blown it and been far from you and gone our own way instead of your way and put ourselves as authority above you. So thank you, God. We know that Jesus said some tough things, some hard things that challenge us, that challenge our thinking, that challenge our attitudes, that challenge our desire to run our own lives. But we acknowledge that there's something behind what he says. So help us, God, to get there. Help us to reconsider our approach to Jesus. I pray that, Father, that these truths, these realities that we're exploring today would not drive anyone farther from Jesus into their own ways, but that you'd open doors of understanding and wisdom, that you'd show us what you're trying to do, and it would draw us toward you, toward your Son today, toward Jesus. And as we resume our studies in the Gospel of Mark, and we see Jesus moving inexorably toward his purpose as Savior, that you would bring us with, that our hearts would be ready to come along with you in the things that you want to say and do in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name for his honor and glory forever and ever.